Uh, as you know, we have been going through several different biographies of uh, different uh, Americans that have influenced Christianity. I almost said American Christians, but I guess that's not always the case, is it? But uh, Americans who have influenced Christianity. Today we're going to talk about a Christian uh, named Jim Elliott. And uh, I was, uh, was kind of, I had a preconceived notions of what this would be like, or what he was like, and then I, uh, I did all my studies and research, and I came up with a different idea. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, I think you'll find this, uh, especially you young, young men and young women, uh, you will find this, I think, especially helpful to you, because we're not just finding out about a person, we're finding out about their faith how they exercise their faith, and even how we can learn from that. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that we uh, come together as a body, that we can uh, think on you and set aside a day for your glory uh, in a special way, that we are uh, listening to your word to us through your servant, Lord, that we even get to think on uh, different men that you have used uh, in our country to further your uh, gospel to men. Lord, we pray for your help uh, today, that we might uh, learn from this, but especially, Lord, as we go into the service, that our hearts would be prepared and ready to hear your word to us and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So, um, as I was thinking uh, about doing this, uh, I was always interested in Jim Elliott because he was a conundrum to me. Um, you know, it wasn't exactly reformed, uh, so it wasn't kind of from our side of the woods. Uh, but... He was uh, a, a product of a time where being manly uh, was um, expected. And uh, having a manliness in your Christianity uh, was something that um, I guess you just don't see very much anymore. And by that I mean, and, I, and I'm, I don't mean to alienate women, obviously, but we're talking about a man. Um, <laughs> I just, um, I think we, um, there was a time that uh, people acted differently and thought differently. And I don't think we have to just look back at that and say, oh, wow, that's, that's admirable, and then move on with our uh, men with our effeminate lives. Um, I think we look back on this and say there's something about that I need to work on. Um, so, having said that, I don't know if that's much of a good introduction or not, but uh, so with, uh, let me give you some background to his family. So the Elliots actually came, this is uh, obviously from Jim's side of things, because um, we're gonna talk about uh, Elizabeth and a little bit his wife. But uh, Jim's side of the family came from Scotland, 
which is pretty reformed. Uh, in fact, when they came, uh, they came to uh, Canada initially, uh, because in those days, uh, Canada had a lot of land, and it was cheap, and people were, uh, were uh, collecting land as fast as they could. And so they went to the Toronto area and uh, was on a farm, and they went to the local Presbyterian church. So they started out Presbyterians, um, which is interesting. So uh, they had several children, uh, one of which was named Fred. He came uh, to belief through uh, Harry Ironside. I don't know if you know very much about Henry Ironside, but he was part of the Plymouth Brethren Movement. Plymouth Brethren Movement was a, a movement that came out of a guy named John Darby. All right, that's uh, not Dabney, it's diff something different. This is Darby. So Darby was a guy that really did not like the Anglican Church uh, and was kind of a radical, uh, not in a good way. Uh, he kind of, he kind of um, saw a church as something that didn't have to happen in a traditional way. It could be in a home, and if you're male, you should be able to preach. That was the qualification. You had to be a good, a good man. You couldn't be a bad guy. But uh, basically, if you're a Christian in good standing uh, and you're male, you can preach. And, they had a, and so he kind of started this movement, this independent kind of uh, living as a church, uh, usually from people's houses and things like that. He, uh, this Darby guy was kind of obsessed with the end times. Um, and was overly obsessed with it, I think, to the point where his theology began to grow around those end times. Um, and so it led him to a belief that the Bible should be understood not through its covenants, but through its time periods. And he called these time periods dispensations. And so uh, he saw the Bible split up into different dispensations. Now, we use the term dispensations as well. It's in the, I believe it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, referring to um, the way things were and the way things are and things like that. But our view of Scripture, the Bible particularly, is more holistic. We see that you need it all together, speaking of one people the entire time. With Darby, he had the idea that with these dis different dispensations, you had actually different peoples. You had Israel, and then later on in a different dispensation, you would have the church. And these are two different groups that God deals with differently in different dispensations. Uh, Darby, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but I think it's important to understand where the roots of all this came from. Um, Darby uh, almost disappeared into obscurity uh, because he started a movement that was kind of radical. It's kind of self-defeating in that it was so independent from actual church life that uh, it almost died out. But this guy named Schofield uh, really liked him, and so he started. So this guy named Schofield started this this uh, these notes that he took in his Bible and uh, began to put them into uh, a more structured sense, and it became the Schofield Study Bible. 
And the idea was called dispensationalism. That's where we get that idea. Something that hadn't been around until the late 1800s, almost died out if it wasn't for a guy named Schofield in the 20th century. So it's kind of a new uh, view of how to deal with scripture. Um, and this, is, this really caught on in the, in the early 20th century. Um, it, was, it was used as a way to combat the liberals. Okay? Now, because dispensationalism was something that was new, uh, there were no liberals in dispensationalism yet, right? <laughs> because it was new. Um, and so you had people with, you know, a system like my, maybe what we would have, covenant theology, that obviously has been around so long you had liberals. And so you can see how the idea that, well, this covenant theology thing seems to be what liberals think, right? Because there were liberals in that world. Um, and that, that tended to happen because of some um, lack of knowledge. But the point is, uh, that's where all that came from. So that's where you have this dispensational view of Scripture. And that's going to come in uh, to be important later on. But Fred really got into, uh, was led to the Lord by Ironside. And I will tell you this, uh, how you are led into God's kingdom uh, has a large effect on you. Um, and so... When Fred was brought to the Lord through Ironside's ministry, he began to uh, follow Ironside, literally <laughs> uh, follow him around, and would uh, also preach at some of, the, uh, some of the big events that Ironside would have. Uh, Ironside actually eventually became pastor at the Moody Bible uh, Church. I forgot what it's called. It's the church right next to Moody Bible Institute. Is it called Moody Bible Church? <laughs> Is it? Okay, thank you. So that's where Ironside ended up. He's written a lot. Uh, you will find uh, uh, if you look into dispensationalism, things like that. So Fred uh, is this man that who, who is on fire for the Lord. He is preaching around America. And he meets this uh, young lady named Clara, eventually, uh, from hardworking farmers from, from the uh, Swiss uh, region. Uh, they came from uh, Switzerland uh, to the Seattle-Portland area. Um, Fred and Clara married and settled down in Seattle, Washington, and they had, uh, they had four kids. Robert who was born in 1921, Herbert, who was born in 1924, Jim, born in 1927, and Jane, born in 1932. And of course, Jim is the one we're thinking about, uh, Jim Elliott. Now, Jim Elliott had a, he had a, a personality to him that was, um, you can put it this way, he was a boy's boy. Uh, he was very... Um, he was always in a rush. Here, let me uh, read something to you. This is from one of his friends in grade school uh, writing about him, that he would always arrive late to school, <clears throat> to school on his bike. He would come, you know, just as the bell was ringing, he would skid on his uh, bike <laughs> to, to a stop, 
and his friend would be there because he was in charge of locking up the bikes. And then he would mutter something about being late and thanks and disappear into the school building. For one whole year, that was my complete acquaintance with this picture of speed, fury, and recklessness. And that was kind of his, imp <laughs> that's kind of the imp impression I got of what his childhood was like. It was fast, it was furious, and it was reckless. <laughs> um, Jim was a little shorter than other kids, uh, but had a real build. Brown hair, rugged good looks. The girls always looked at him twice. It's kind of interesting. Um, I can't identify with that when I was in school. Uh, the thing uh, I admired <laughs> above all was his keen mind. Okay, another something that I didn't have in grade school. Um, he comprehended things and understood instructions very fast, while I, this is speaking of his friend, was always about a mile back. Um, and he, he, it goes on to talk about how when he understood something, he would always try to explain it to his friends. Uh, not be proud of it, but try and get it across. I think that's kind of interesting because um, he was known for his ability to speak. In fact, at one point, uh, he was asked to give a speech, uh, what was, it? Harry was it Harry Truman that died during his time? Some president died during his time. I forgot what it was. I usually remember these things, but not now. Um, and so they found out that morning at the school, and so they asked Jim if he would give a speech to the school. And even the, even the teacher said it was the best speech they ever heard, and he only had like two hours to prepare for it. So he's just that kind of a kid. But he was a boy's boy in that he got a job working for his brother who collected garbage uh, from the side of the road and people would pay him to do this. And so it's like one of those dirty jobs, right? And what he did was while he was working for his brother collecting garbage, he would save all the bricks. And guys, I think you'd appreciate this. He saved the bricks so that he could create a grill. That's a young man that understands. Um, and so he, <laughs> to create something that makes meat uh, tastes good. So uh, that's important to me. I thought that was important. Okay, so that's just the kind of kid he was. Um, so in 1945, it's time for him to go to college. And um, as you would expect, he ended up in the, college, or in the Chicago area. All right? You had Moody Bible Institute there, and you had Wheaton College there, both uh, very uh, much influenced by this dispensational idea, at least back then. It's, uh, Wheaton has changed quite a bit, but um, I don't think Moody has. Anywho, uh, he ended up going to Wheaton College in Illinois. And what's interesting to me about this is the, um, the struggles he went through as a young man going to college. And um, it's something I think about even with my own son, um, about the, you know, here's this young man, he's very serious about the Lord, he's very serious about wanting to serve God. In fact, that's why he went to college. He didn't know what to major in. 
He didn't have a passion about the majors. Um, he wasn't like, oh, I'm really into accounting. I just really want to uh, you know, do accounting for someone one day. Uh, it wasn't something like that. He wasn't even like thinking, I want to be a teacher and be, you know, teach children. He had no kind of passion for the major itself. Um, he had a passion for serving the Lord, and he didn't know what that would look like. Um, but he was, he was clear-minded enough to know he, he wanted to serve God. And so he just picked something that he thought would be helpful. So he ended up picking uh, Greek, as you would imagine. Um, <laughs> I think Wheaton, back then, Wheaton understood that if you get a degree in Bible, there's nothing you can do with that, uh, except for be a pastor, of course. Um, so what they did was they used languages um, that helped you study the Bible better, but you, know, the lang- you, know, you had this major in linguistics which, of course, would uh, allow you some kind of avenue um, as well. So I think that was pretty smart of Wheaton. Um, so the verse that he kind of had as his, as his verse going into college was this. Um, it was 2 Timothy 2.4, and I want to read it for you. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Um, He saw his life as military service. Um, He didn't see the Christian life as a passive service. Um, He didn't see himself in peacetime. He saw himself as a soldier. Um, And so he saw college as something I need to do in order to train myself better as a soldier. Now, I want you to think about that, especially you young people in the room. Um, What's interesting about his journey, if I can put it that way, in college is that you got the sense that he wasn't looking to be happy. That wasn't his goal. I know that sounds curmudgeon. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? It's like, I I know you young people are so tired of adults telling you, you know, you know, well, God's not here to make you happy. (laughs) Right? Right? And like, you know, and, and and, and for young people, that's their biggest terror in life that they won't be happy, right? They're afraid, you know, they won't meet someone or that they will meet someone, but they'll be terrible and they won't be happy, right? Or they'll, or they'll major in something and that thing is going to be terrible and they go out and they get this job and they realize they're not happy. I mean, isn't that the biggest fear of young people that one day they'll find that they're not happy? And so the major they try to choose is the major they think, will this make me happy? And the person they date, will this person make me happy? Right? And every decision that's made with young people, and that's the, and that's the tricky thing about, about people entering into their 20s, right? They're at the youngest point of their life where they will ma- be making the biggest decisions of their life. <laughs> of all the people that shouldn't be making these decisions, it's people in their 20s. <laughs> yes. We don't even let them drink until they're 21, and that's the government. 
Even they have figured things out a little bit. So here's my point. Um, I look at Jim Elliott and I see this alien in our world. He just isn't part of this world. Um, and I'm not even uh, you know, getting down on young people for wanting to be happy. I think it's a natural thing. But Jim was serious about serving the Lord and fighting in the war. And, and here's the big secret, young people, and even the rest of us. In having that passion to serve the Lord, it ended up making him happy. All the way to his death. He was one of the happiest young men who had this goal and this desire to serve, to serve his general, right? Um, I think half the reason young people are turned off by Christianity is because they have no idea who their general is. They don't know that there is a general because we have made Jesus Christ so effeminate. We've made him the hippie of the 70s and not the soldier in Vietnam, we have done it with our images of Jesus. We've done it with the way we have exalted, effeminate men preaching the, preaching the gospel. And so young people look at that and they say, I don't want to be like that. We have shown them a version of Jesus that isn't even Jesus. And the kids are turned off by it and they think they're turned off by Christianity, but they're not. They're being turned off by the hippie Jesus that isn't even real. And Jim saw the Jesus that is in the jungle, wearing camouflage and telling him, follow me, we're going to live a dangerous life together. That's the Jesus we need to start introducing young men to, the one that Jim Elliott saw. Because um, I worry about this. As I was reading through this, I just saw this Jesus that I don't think young men have been acquainted with. Um, he felt led to go to Wheaton, and he felt led to go there by God. Wouldn't it be great if young people, you know, saw where they were going as where God was leading them, not this inevitable place they have to go? And I don't mean just college, I mean whatever you're doing after graduation from high school, uh, do you feel like this is a place that you just inevitably have to be? Or do you feel led by God to go somewhere because you're going to learn something so you can be a better soldier? We could learn that as older people. The job God has provided us with, whether we like it or not, is this something God has led us to? And if so, how are we supposed to be soldiers there? Uh, one person I can identify with the most is Timothy, uh, who is a soldier really behind enemy lines. When you are teaching at a secular school, it's not just a school that's left God out. <laughs> that's the way it probably was more in the 50s. But today, it's a school that hates God. Hates. And you have to be there and fight. Um. And fighting sometimes means a very dangerous world where the people that have the power to fire you 
uh, are the people that you have to fight. Um, I always tell young people that say, you know what, I want to go to college, get a degree, and teach in the public schools. And I say, awesome, just be ready to lose your job every day you go in. If you're not ready to lose your job every day you go into that, that school and teach, do not be a public school teacher. You will just be a sellout. Um, and what I see in Jim Elliott is this fierceness, um, this unrelenting desire, always pushing him forward because he loved his general. He loved his general. Um, he would do crazy things like to get back from school to home, he hitchhiked. <laughs> now, I know we think that's crazy today, but it was pretty crazy back then too. Uh, you know, psychopaths were around. Uh, and so, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's something you should admire, uh, but it's just the kind of guy he was. He just, um, yes. So he's hitchhiking from, from Chicago to Seattle. That's a, that's a trek. Um, just because he didn't have a car, so what else is he going to do? Buses were expensive. He didn't have a lot of money. Um, but he was a strong guy. Um, he didn't make himself an easy target. And this is something I learned in, uh, when we lived in Philly. Danny Q remind, rem remembers this. When you live in Philly, especially where we, where we lived in our first eight months in Philadelphia, it was a mistake. We should not have lived in that house. But it was cheap. But it was cheap because we were surrounded uh, by horrible, horrible neighborhoods. That we really could have died. Um, but one of the things you learn is that you don't make yourself an easy target. So, you know, you get your body in shape. You do things so that when someone looks at you, they don't think, uh, that's an easy target. Right? And that's the way Jim Elliott was. Jim Elliott was a strong guy. He was involved in wrestling. He was involved in athletics because um, he just wasn't, he just thought this is what men do. And in that, he, when you looked at him, you didn't think, hey, that's an easy target. <laughs> um, and so hitchhiking may not have been too, too scary for him. Uh, but anyway, I say all that to say, to give you a sense of what kind of young man this was. Um, but this was his response to education. I want you to, I'm reading parts of his, uh, his journals that he wrote. Um, how are we doing? Oh, okay. All right, we'll speed it up a little. But I want you to see what he says about education because I think he has this balance. Here's a guy going to Wheaton College, pretty decent college to go to, well known at that time. Um, and this is what he thought of education. Um, and you got to remember, he's a young man, very passionate. Of, oftentimes, he over-exaggerates his passions, right? Um, if you have any experience with anyone between the ages of 18 and 25, you know that there are times they say things that goes way over the top, but then you look at their actions and you see, okay, there is a balance there in their mind. Thank goodness. <laughs> but uh, this is what he says. Um, he was... his. He was starting to get down on being at college. He kind of hated it. And so he writes to his dad about this, and his dad says, no, you got to, you know, education is good, education is good. And this is what he writes back to his dad. You speak, you speak of it, speaking of education, as rounding out one's manhood. 
It rounds it out all right, but I'm afraid sometimes it's more of a style, in the style of 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up. Culture, philosophy, disputes, drama in the weaker forms. That's kind of interesting. Um, concerts and opera. And if you're, those of you that uh, plan on going to Bob Jones in the, in the fall, I just named all the things that you will be dealing with your freshman year. Um, politics. Everything that can occupy the intellect seems to turn aside the hearts of many here on campus from the humble life in the steps of the master. Though we sing about it most delicately. That's an interesting statement. No, no, education is dangerous. And personally, I am beginning to question its value in a Christian's life. I do not disparage wisdom that comes from God, not from PhDs. <laughs> now, having said all that, <laughs> having said all that, that was his freshman year. He did graduate. And he, yes, so he's a freshman. Yeah. But you can see what his concern is. At one point, he even tells one of his friends uh, who graduated from high school and ended up working in a bank, he said, get out of the bank. And he said, you're not making very much money. You're not finding a wife. Go to college. Go to Wheaton. Get the, and this is something he said, I believe, his junior year to his friend uh, about getting out of this world and get into college and learn something. So you can see... You know, although there is that immaturity, there is that balance that he sees. But there's something he was concerned about. The thing he was concerned about is taking his eyes off the prize. Anything that takes his that that he could feel is starting to take his passion away for his general, he started to find disdain towards. Okay, now I think part of the problem also is he's going to a college that didn't quite understand what biblical worldview meant. And so they probably, when he went to, a, to one of the classes that talked about math, that's all they talked about was math. They didn't show how this relates to a biblical worldview, which I'm sure made him feel like, you know, when I go to math class, that's all, the, you know, it's just another thing. It's taking my eyes off the prize. So having said all that, um, it was, was, it was uh, in college that he got a friend named Dave, and Dave asked him to uh, come with him, uh, home with him, over the summer and just spend the summer with him because they became such good friends. Well, Dave had a pretty sister uh, who uh, Jim called Betty, but her name was Elizabeth. They lived in Germantown, Pennsylvania, and that's uh, where uh, our family ended up living when I went to Westminster. We lived in Germantown. It's a very beautiful little spot. And, uh, and in Germantown, there's a lot of Presbyterian churches. In fact, speaking of Presbyterian, I don't know what, Elizabeth's fam what church Elizabeth's family went to. She was kind of vague about all that. But one of the things that uh, Jim lamented when he went and visited their church was he said I, he kind of felt lost because he didn't, know, he didn't know the Apostles' Creed and he didn't know how to sing, a, he said, a, a decent Presbyterian hymn. And he was discouraged about that because he felt like, you know, why don't I know 
these things. Uh, he kind of felt uh, incomplete about that. And so anyway, so there's these influences on him. Um, but he had this strong push towards missions. Um, and I know I'm running out of time. But one of the things that he was upset about, not upset, but one of the things that he felt was starting to take his, his mind off of his goals was even the way the Bible was being taught at Wheaton. I'm trying to find what page that was. Uh, I don't want to read this to you. This is what he was getting discouraged about. He says, 2 Timothy 2.9 says, The word of the Lord is, is not bound. Systematic theology, be careful how you tie down the word to fit your set and the final creed, system, dogmas, and organized theistic philosophies. The word of God is not bound. It is free to say what it will to the individual, and no one can outline it into dispensations which cannot be broken. Don't, don't get it down cold, but let it live fresh, warm, and vibrant. So you had this sense in which he was starting to discover how certain systems can, um, can be constrictive. Uh, over your understanding of Scripture, uh, even uh, particular forms that might strain the uh, understanding of it. Um, but I also wanted to show you some of the things that he would get discouraged about. Uh, he was pleading with God uh, because he did get discouraged even in college, in, in what his call was. He quotes, every hour I need thee. He says, my love is faint, my warmth practically nil. Thoughts of his coming flicker and make me tremble. Oh, that I were not so empty-handed. Joy and peace can only come in believing, and that is all I can say to him tonight. Lord, I believe. I don't love, I don't feel, I don't understand, I can only believe. Bring thou faith to fruition, great harvest, Lord. Produce in me, I pray. This came today while meditating. Then he goes into a poem that he writes. And so I, you can see that this is a young man who, even with his goals set hard towards Christ, have those moments where he has discouragement. But I want you to notice where his discouragement is, young men and young women. His discouragement is, is that there's times where he doesn't feel for the Lord. His discouragement comes in his relationship with the Lord, not his relationship with what he thinks will make him happy. He doesn't get discouraged because he's afraid of not being happy. He gets discouraged because he's afraid that his passion and love for the Lord is waning. That's what discourages him. And in that constant pursuit, you see a young man who is constantly interested in his general. 
Um, he ended up graduating from Wheaton with honors. Um, and I want you to see something. Throughout all this, he's kind of dating, um, unofficially dating uh, Elizabeth. But he doesn't commit. One day, uh, he reveals his love for her, and she reveals his love for him, and they still don't get married for a while because he was worried about that connection might hinder him from his work with the Lord. This was back to his verse, 2 Timothy 2.4, is impossible in the United States if one insists on a wife. <laughs> I learned from this that the wisest life is the simplest one, lived in the fulfillment of only the basic requirements of life, shelter, food, covering, and a bed. And even these can become productive of other needs if one does not heed. Be on guard, my soul, of contemplating your environment so that you have neither time nor room for growth. He saw that, and this is where we got to be really delicate. He saw that, what 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about, that marriage does distract, right? And he was worried about that. Okay. I want you to notice what he wasn't worried about. He wasn't worried, oh no, what if I never find anyone? He wasn't worried about, is the Lord going to bring someone to me? It was, Lord, should I even be searching because I want to keep my focus on my general and my passion about being a good soldier, and I don't want any distractions, even if that means a wife. Now, we look at that and we go, oh, that's crazy. Uh, that's going too far. But did he get married? Yes. So you can see there's this balance there. He is concerned over this because, this, because you see where his goal is. His, his concern is not, oh, no, will I not be happy? His concern is, oh, no, will I be distracted from my goal of being a good soldier for my, for my general? Do you see how strange this is for today's young person? How strange it is for people our age today, where we are so concerned about our happiness that we forget about loving our general and being focused on what our general has. Okay, running out of time. I know that the most famous thing about Jim Elliott is that he became a missionary. He became a missionary uh, because, not because he always wanted to be a missionary, but he saw an opportunity. Um, a missionary was coming home off the field from Ecuador and said to him, have you considered taking my place in Ecuador? We need help. He left college having no idea what he was going to do. Okay, I want that even to be a comfort to some of you. Uh, he left, he was in college, and people would ask him, what do you want to do? And he goes, I don't know. And he graduated with honors, and they said, what are you going to do? And he goes, I don't know. But what was his focus? His focus constantly was, what's the need, and can I fill the need? 
not what will make me happy, and then I'll pursue that. Oh no, I don't know what's going to make me happy, so I don't know what to pursue. Do you see the difference? People our age can, can identify with that kind of thinking. Where our thoughts are, what will make me happy? How do I pursue that? And, you know, some people know what will make them happy, so they pursue it, and they look like, right, they look like they know what they're doing. And some of you young people that are like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, become envious of those people that kind of figured out what will make them happy and they pursue it. I would rather you be like Jim Elliott and say, what are the needs and have I been gifted to fit those needs? And maybe you never thought of missions before, right? I grew up in a Baptist church where the missionaries come, they show you these horrifying pictures. You're like, I will never do that. And then they say, if you don't do that, you're a bad Christian. I'm like, ah. I don't want to go there. That looks terrible. And you know, I got all these kids like, maybe I should be a missionary. And they're not called to be a missionary. They're just guilted into it because these guys come and make you feel terrible about yourself. But, um, but what Jim Elliott wanted was to see where the needs were. And there was a need in Ecuador. And so he pursued it. He had a gift for linguistics. And so he learned the language and he went there. And that's where, he, um, that's where he finally married his, uh, his wife, Elizabeth. And I want you also to be encouraged that he was a normal kid that got jealous of things. Um, he had a good friend um, named Peter and a good friend named Ed. Um, and Ed uh, was going to go with him to Ecuador, and then he got married. And he wrote this letter to his mom and dad saying, oh, I can't believe he's, you know, he's, he's, we had this plan and now he's going to get married and he's going to ruin everything. And his mom wrote him back and said, are you jealous because he's getting married and you're not? And the kid was honest. He said, yeah, I'm jealous. I want to be married. And Ed got married and I didn't. I want you to understand, he was a normal guy that wanted a woman. And when he saw people around him, you know, being successful and getting what, you know, they want and having that relationship and he doesn't have it, he was like a normal young man and said, I want that too. And the Lord honored him and finally gave him that wife. They had a child over there. And one day, uh, if I can wrap this up quickly, the most famous part of Jim Elliott's life is that he wanted to reach a group that had never been reached before, the Aka Indians. His friend Peter flew him over there with his, with his other friends. Uh, Ed was one of them. And uh, they first dropped a bunch of gifts for the people. They started, um, then they had base camp there for about two months. And then, um, and then they had some contact with one group of people, and they seemed very happy. They gave them a plane ride. They seemed very excited to be there. And then the next contact was a group of 10 warriors that came out and did not speak to them, but threw spears into their chests and killed Jim Elliott first and then the rest of his friends. And, um, and what's amazing about that is the kind of woman that Jim married 
I always say you can tell more about a man by the woman he marries than you can about a conversation with him. Um, and, uh, and he married the kind of woman that went back to those Indians, the Aka Indians, and uh, ministered to them. And one of the warriors that was responsible for the death of, his, of her own husband was led to the Lord. And so you see that kind of faith, that kind of love for the general. And I want to leave you with a quote from Jim Elliott talking about people that he visited um, at a church he was at. And I want you to listen, especially young men. This is for everybody. But especially young men, I want you to listen to these words as we close. Speaking of the people he met at this church, they were most hospitable. They have a nice home and and belongings and two cute kitties, but are so like the rest of us in that it is again disheartening. We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace, while we profess to know the power, uh, to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with, but we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in the battle to the death with the principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with men, but, but brass, brash, unspoken boldness is required to take part in the comradeship of the cross. We are, sold, we are, we are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Let that be ringing in our ears as we uh, think about how the Lord will use us and our church, especially how he uses us as we look to a world that hates our God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, kindness to us in that you have used people for us to be able to look at and be envious of their faith. Let us be envious, Lord, of others' faith that we might pursue it ourselves, that we might be jealous um, of the kind of lives that they live, that we might want that kind of a life for us, that you make us soldiers in your army, Lord, we ask for those in our church, our congregation, to be dangerous to the world. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.